0: This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at GYCweb.org. Okay, are you ready to study? All right. You got your weapon? Yeah. All right. Good deal. Sword of the Spirit. Our shield. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the good lunch that we've had. Thank you for the Christian fellowship. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of, with full freedoms, studying your holy word. We realize that the days are coming when This will be done under very trying circumstances. We thank you, Father, also for the privilege of being at GYC. Thousands of young people with a common vision of uh, becoming involved actively and helping in the finishing of your work on earth so that we can go home. Father, we ask that as we study about the first Pentecost, the relationship that it bears to what Jesus is doing now and what he will soon cease doing, that your Holy Spirit will guide our thoughts and give us understanding. And we thank you for the privilege of approaching your throne boldly in prayer. And we know that you have heard us because we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. The first thing that I would like us to take a look at is... Yes, uh, over by the door in a box. I would like us to take a look at what I call the chronology of Pentecost. We're going to take a look at the events of the ministry of Christ from his baptism all the way down to the time that the Holy Spirit was poured out. The first stage that I want to bring to your attention is... The earthly ministry of Christ before his death, it lasted three and a half years. And the purpose of the life of Jesus during these three and a half years was to live a perfect life that could provide for us an example, but that he could also provide as a substitute for our sinful life. So in other words, in the camp of the sanctuary, Jesus pitched his tent for three and a half years, actually before that also, but especially during the three and a half years, he faced every temptation that we have ever faced or will ever face, plus much more, and he never sinned. He developed a perfect life that he could give to us. Then, at the very end of the three and a half years on what has come to be known as Good Friday actually it was on the fourteenth day of the month of Nisan at three o'clock in the afternoon in the year thirty-one there were prophecies that pointed exactly to the hour, day, month, and year seventy weeks pointed to the year and the Passover pointed to the. Hour, the day, and the month. And so Jesus, at three o'clock in the afternoon, on Friday, was sacrificed as the perfect lamb. He died. And then, of course, he was buried. And he remained buried in the grave for all of the Sabbath. He rested the Sabbath day like he had rested from his work of creation at the very beginning. And then, of course, we know, do you know that there was a prophecy that pointed to the fact that Jesus was going to rest in the tomb and his body would see no corruption? Have any of you heard the sermon, the study that I did on on the manna? Hmm. There's more there than meets the eye. See, usually when we talk about the manna, We say, "Oh, manna didn't fall on Sabbath because God wanted us to understand that we're that we're supposed to keep the Sabbath." But we totally lose the messianic meaning of why He wanted us to keep the Sabbath because manna did not fall on the Sabbath. Now, let me just amplify this point very quickly. What happened when the manna was picked up on Friday, or picked up rather on Wednesday and saved for Thursday? Two things, it bred worms and it stank. Now let me ask you, what is it that breeds worms and stinks? A decomposing body, decomposing flesh. But when the manna was picked up on Friday, on Sabbath, it was just as fresh as... It was on Friday. And the manna represents Jesus. He said, I am the Living Manna. But there's more, not only Jesus in general terms, it says in John 6 51 that the the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. So the manna represented Christ's flesh. What day did Jesus die? What happened to his what would have happened to a normal body If a person died on Friday and his body was in the tomb on Sabbath, his body would have begun to decompose. But the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost in his sermon, he said that the body of Jesus was in the tomb and it saw no corruption because he was the manna. And the manna did not breed worms or stink on the Sabbath. So, in other words, the reason we're supposed to keep the Sabbath is because there's a messianic explanation. We keep the Sabbath because Jesus, the manna, rested on the Sabbath to commemorate redemption. There's a messianic reason to it. So there was a prophecy that indicated that he was going to rest in the tomb on Sabbath. And his body would see no corruption, like the manna did not corrupt on the Sabbath. And then, of course... Early on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, Jesus resurrected. And he went to heaven, made a very brief visit to heaven uh, to his Father, and then he returned to the earth. Do you know at what time of the day Jesus went to heaven to have this little visit with his Father? At nine o'clock in the morning, you say, "How do you know that?" Because the day of Pentecost came exactly fifty days after the first fruits were weighed before the Lord, and the Book of Acts tells us when and what hour the Holy Spirit was poured out. <laughs> it says. Remember that the the people started speaking in other other tongues? They said, these guys are drunk. And others said, how can they be drunk? It's only the third hour, which is 9 o'clock in the morning. Exactly 50 days after the first fruits were way before the Lord. You know, I kind of snicker at people. You know, they talk about the prophecies of Nostradamus. (laughs) Ambiguous. You have to stretch your imagination to find any fulfillment. And yet, they will reject the idea that prophecy specified the exact hour, day, month, and year of the death of Jesus. It pointed to the exact year when he would begin his earthly ministry. It pointed in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when he would rest in the tomb, which was the 15th of Nisan, after the Passover, and it's specified that on the next day, the first fruits, he would resurrect. Now, that's, you don't have to use your imagination. That's precise. So, Jesus resurrects on the third day, and then 40 days go by, and Jesus is on earth with his disciples. What is Jesus doing during those 40 days? The book of Acts tells us. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, we're told that he spoke to his disciples about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. That's another way of saying that Jesus explained to the disciples Bible prophecy during those 40 days. He explained to them the prophecies that had been fulfilled in him, and he explained to them what was soon going to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. So Jesus resurrects and then he spends 40 days on the earth speaking to his disciples about the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And then after the 40 days we have the ascension of Christ to heaven. Let's read it in Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11. Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11 speaks about the ascension of Christ. Are you getting the chronology straight? Dies on Friday. Actually, he's baptized in the year 27. Three and a half years of ministry. Dies on the 14th of Nisan, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Is the unleavened bread in the grave, beginning the next day. Then he resurrects the day after that. Forty days go by, and now he ascends to heaven. It says there in Acts 1, verse 9. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched... He was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner, as you saw him go into heaven. And then Jesus disappeared from their sight. Then the disciples returned to Jerusalem. They returned to the upper room. And for the next ten days, they prepared to receive the Holy Spirit, to give them power to witness. They prayed such as they had never prayed before. They studied Bible prophecy such as they never had studied before. They ironed out their differences because there was contention. On the last trip to Jerusalem, they were discussing what cabinet posts each of them was going to have in the new government. They placed all of their possessions at the disposal of God's work. They were emptied of self and prepared for the infilling of the Holy Spirit. That's what they did during those ten days between the ascension and when the Holy Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost. Now one question which is seldom asked is, what was Jesus doing during those ten days? We know what the disciples were doing. They were studying, they were praying, ironing out their differences, placing their possessions at the disposal of the work. But what was Jesus doing during those ten days? Well, we're going to try and answer that question. Now, the Bible tells us who was present there in the upper room during those ten days. Notice Acts chapter 1 and verse 13. Specific names are mentioned It says, in Acts 1, verse 13, And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. And now notice the names. Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip, and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Now, as you read this list, you discover that there are eleven individuals mentioned. Only eleven. So the question immediately comes up, what happened to Apostle number twelve? Well, being that they undoubtedly had that question, The Apostle Peter stood up, and he said to them, let me tell you the story about Judas. He was one of the twelve. And then he tells the story about how Judas committed suicide. And you know, there's two biblical accounts of the death of Judas. Some people say the Bible contradicts itself, because in one it says that Judas went and hung himself, and in the other it says that he fell uh, to the ground... That's an axe, and he split open, and his innards came out. Ellen White explains it beautifully. She says that Judas was the largest of the disciples. He was a heavy man. And when he was going to hang himself, he placed the rope over a branch that hung over a ledge that was quite a distance to the ground. And because he was heavy, when he jumped off, the branch broke, and he fell a great distance to the ground. And when he fell to the ground, his belly split open and his innards came out. And Ellen White goes on to say that later on that day, when uh, Jesus was out in the procession to the cross, that the people, uh, as they were coming by that place, uh, were filled with horror because they saw that dogs were eating the innards of Judas. So, these stories don't contradict each other. They're in perfect harmony. He, he did have the intention of committing suicide, because he did jump off a ledge. But, uh, you know, the, he, he actually fell to the ground, and it was because of the fall uh, that he died. So, so, Peter stands, and he gives the explanation about why there are only 11 when there were actually 12 Apostles, originally. And so Peter now, after telling the story of Judas in chapter 1, he says, we must now elect a successor to replace Judas. Interesting. We must elect a successor to replace Judas. Now the question is, why did Peter suggest that it was necessary to elect a successor for Judas? The answer is very simple. Jesus, during those 40 days that he spent with the disciples, and the apostles during the 10 days that they were in the upper room, they studied Bible prophecy with a renewed interest. And they discovered that Bible prophecy predicted... The death of Judas, and that Bible prophecy mandated that they elect a successor. This shows that they now understood Bible prophecy, such as never before. You say, where is that? Acts chapter 1, and verse 16, and then we'll read verse 20. It says in Acts 1, verse 16, this is Peter speaking, Men and brethren, this scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas. In other words, David wrote about whom? About Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. And then we skip verses 18 and 19 because that's where Peter tells the story about the apostasy of Judas and his death. Now we go down to verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms Let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it. In other words, Judas is not going to come back to his house. That's Psalm 69, verse 25. And then it continues saying, and let another take his office. There's the mandate to what? To elect a successor. That comes from Psalm 109, and verses 7 and 8. So why did Peter suggest that it was necessary to name a successor? It's because they now understood that Bible prophecy predicted the death of Judas and that Bible prophecy also mandated that a successor had to be named in place of Judas. Now there's this myth that has developed in some circles of the Adventist church and we have these myths, you know. And old traditions die hard in the light of new evidence. You know, several people were asking me about the 24 elders this morning. They say, well, the church has always taught that the 24 elders are those who resurrected with Christ. And Jesus took to heaven with him. Uh, The problem with that interpretation is that the 24 elders were already there in Revelation chapter 4 before Jesus arrived in chapter 5. That's only one of the problems. And there are many others. Ellen White makes it so simple. She says that the 24 elders are simply the highest of angels, powerful angels that represent the worlds. The book of Job makes that clear. The sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. That is God's great heavenly counsel. And Ellen White explains it very clearly in the book Desire of Ages. And so, Peter says we need to elect a successor. And this myth has developed in the Adventist Church that it was really God's plan that Saul of Tarsus be Apostle number 12. you find that this is the, the, the view that is held by many in the church, that God wanted the, the church to choose the Apostle Paul as Apostle number 12. But the disciples jumped the gun. In other words, they hastened to elect a successor Before they were supposed to. And they made a mistake in electing Matthias instead of electing Saul of Tarsus. Now I'd like to say that this myth is not sustained at all by the evidence from scripture or from the spirit of prophecy. In fact, Ellen White makes it very clear that the Apostle Paul took the place of Stephen in the book Acts of the Apostles. In other words, when Stephen was was killed, God already had his killer as being the next apostle. (laughs) Interesting. God works in mysterious ways. Now, why is this myth not correct? I'm going to give you three reasons. Reason number one, we find in Acts chapter 1, and verses 21 and 22. Acts 1, 21 and 22. It gives us the qualities that the successor had to have. Now you're going to tell me if Saul of Tarsus had these necessary qualities. It says there, this is Peter speaking, Therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. What was the necessary qualification for the successor? He had to have been with the, the apostles from the time of John the Baptist till the time of the ascension of Jesus Christ. The Saul of Tarsus meet that specification. He does not, because he was converted actually three and a half years after the death of Christ. In other words, he was converted seven years too late to be the successor. So the Bible itself tells us that Saul of Tarsus does not meet this specification. The second reason is that the disciples followed the correct process in electing the successor. Notice chapter 1, and verses 24 to 26. Acts 1, 24 to 26. It says, And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two you have chosen. Did they pray? And they want to know whom God has chosen. So show which of these two you have chosen, To take part in this ministry, and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go to his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And one of the arguments that's used, they say, well, after this, Matthias isn't mentioned at all. Neither is Nathaniel. Neither is Simon the Zealot. It doesn't help to go down that road because most of the apostles, other than the real prominent ones, are never mentioned again after the Gospels. So just because Matthias isn't mentioned after this doesn't mean that he didn't play an important role in the history of the Church. Now the third reason is that Ellen White explicitly tells us that Matthias was God's choice. In the book The Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 3... Page 264, you should have this in your material. Ellen White explains, two men were selected. Who, what does it say next? In the careful judgment, were they careful? Oh, absolutely. In the careful judgment of the believers, were best qualified for the place. But the disciples, distrusting their ability to decide, the question further referred it to one that knew all hearts. They sought the Lord in prayer to ascertain which of the two men was more suitable for the important position of trust as an apostle of Christ. And now listen carefully to what she says. The Spirit of God selected Matthias for the office. Who selected Matthias? The Spirit of the Lord. It's not that the disciples you know, acted hastily and chose the wrong guy, because Ellen White explicitly says that the Holy Spirit was the one who made the choice. So what have we noticed? We noticed first of all, that they followed the correct process in electing the successor, and that God made. The selection of the successor, but now we need to ask a very important question: Why did the apostles feel that it was necessary to elect the successor before the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost? I mean, after all, you think of it—you uh, know—wouldn't it have been better to wait for a while? When they had maybe more time, you know, they had important things to do during those ten days. They had to iron out their differences, they had to pray a lot and study scripture, you know. It would have been better, perhaps, to put this on the back burner and say, okay, after the Holy Spirit is poured out, then we'll elect the successor for Judas. Why did they feel an urgency that this had to be done before the Holy Spirit was poured out? Ten days after the ascension of Christ. There's a very important theological reason. I don't know if I need to... see. There we go. Wanted to die on me. I believe the answer to this question is found in the importance in the Bible of the number 12. The importance of the number 12. So let's take a look at the... Importance of the number 12. Now, there are two verses in Acts chapter 1 that use a very important word. Verse 17 says that Judas was numbered with the 12. That begins to give you the idea that what? The number is important. And then, in verse 26, when Matthias is elected, it says, he was numbered with the twelve. So, in other words, the number twelve has some very important meaning to it. There had to be twelve for a reason before the Holy Spirit was poured out. Now, go with me to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1, and let's pursue this idea of the importance of the number 12. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1. And you're going to see the relationship in a few moments. Now, a great sign appeared in heaven a woman. What does a woman represent? The church, but not the church generally speaking, it's the faithful church. So it says, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland or a crown of what? Of twelve stars. So this woman, who represents God's faithful people, has a crown, and the crown has 12 stars. Now, the woman represents the church. You say, how do we know that it represents the church? Usually what we do is we use um, Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And that's a good text. But we don't have to go beyond Daniel and Revelation to find out what the meaning of the woman is. Go with me to Daniel chapter 7, verse 25, and let's let Daniel and Revelation itself explain what the woman represents. Daniel 7, verse 25. Speaking about the little horn, what does the little horn represent? The little horn represents papal Rome. That's correct. So it says, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High. Shall persecute whom? The saints of the Most High shall intend to change times and law, Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, and times, and half a time. So, catch this picture in your mind. The little horn persecutes the saints of the Most High for time, times, and the dividing of time. Now let's go to Revelation 12 and verse 14. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 14. We we uh, discover something very interesting as we compare these two verses. It says there, now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Now what was the persecuting power in Daniel 7? The little horn. What is the persecuting power here? The dragon. So the little horn is the emissary of whom? Of the dragon. So who is behind the little horn? The dragon. The dragon. So, it's a system that's dominated by the dragon, by Satan. Now, in Daniel 7, it said that the little horn persecuted the saints of the Most High. But here it says that the dragon persecuted whom? The woman. So, what does the woman represent? Ah, the saints of the Most High. <laughs> now, you say, is this speaking about the same period? Absolutely. Notice what it continues saying. But the woman was given to wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place where she is nourished. Is this the same period as the little horn? Yes, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So what, what does the woman represent? The saints of the most high. God's faithful church. But now we need to ask this question. In Revelation 12, verse 1, not later on in the chapter, but in Revelation 12, verse 1, is this referring to the faithful Old Testament church, or is it referring to the faithful New Testament church? The answer is very simple. In Revelation 12, verse 1, it's referring to the Old Testament church and i'm going to explain in a moment why was jesus let me ask you who existed first the woman or the male child that's a dumb question because the mother cannot exist before her, uh, the mother cannot exist after her baby or come into existence after her baby first you have the mother and then the mother brings the child into the world so did the woman exist before jesus was born of course now the reason I believe that this represents the Old Testament church in Revelation 12 verse 1 is because the woman is pregnant but the child has not been born are you with me so this must represent the Old Testament church she's crying out in pains because she wants the Messiah to be born you got it Waiting for the consolation of Israel. She's crying out. And then, of course, the child is born. By the way, was Jesus born as the seed of Abraham? Was he the the seed of David? Did he come from the holy line of Old Testament saints? You look at the, the reason for the genealogies. is to trace the lineage of the Messiah. You see, in Genesis chapter 5, you have the genealogy from Adam to Noah. In Genesis 11, you have the genealogy from Abraham, or rather, from Noah to Abraham. And in Matthew chapter 1, you have from Abraham to Christ. In other words, this is the woman, the faithful lineage. The the ancestors of Jesus Christ, the holy line that brings Jesus Christ into the world. And so the Bible tells us that this woman represents the Old Testament church in Revelation 12, verse 1. And she has a crown, and the crown has what? Twelve stars. Now, what do those twelve stars represent? Well, let's go to the Old Testament source. Go with me to Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 and 10. Genesis 37, verses 9 and 10. We're going to see the importance of the number 12 with relationship to this woman. This is a dream that Joseph had. You notice that in Revelation 12, you have sun, moon, and stars, right? Now notice this. Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, "Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars bowed down to me." I, oh, you say, it doesn't say twelve; it says eleven. <laughs> Let me ask you, which was star number twelve? Joseph. So the number twelve refers to the twelve founders of the nation of Israel. The 12 sons of Jacob, 12 individuals. They are the founders of God's Old Testament church. Are you with me? But then these 12 original ones multiply and they become a great nation. But that great nation originates with the 12 founders. Are you following me? They all come from the twelve founders. Listen to Genesis 49, verse 28. Speaking about the sons of Jacob, after he speaks about the character of each one of them, it says, all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is what their father spoke to them, and he blessed them. He blessed each one according to his own Blessing. So, how many were the founders of God's Old Testament church? Twelve. Twelve individuals. But they then proliferate and form a great nation that comes from them. How many apostles did Jesus appoint? Now I purposely said how many I did not say how many apostles did Jesus choose. The Bible says that he appointed twelve. There was one that he did not choose, which was Judas. In fact, that scribe that came and said, I'll follow you, and Jesus tries to discourage him. He says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have any place to lay his head. If you think that you're going to get some financial benefit from this, think again. That's in John chapter 6, by the way. And we know that it was Judas because later on in the chapter, Jesus, Jesus says that one of the disciples was a devil in that same context. And so Jesus appointed 12. Why did Jesus appoint 12? He said, now let me see, what number can I choose? 12 is a good number. Do you think that's what determined the choice? No. He purposely chose twelve. In fact, let's read about those twelve in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, and verses 14 through 19. Mark, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. It says, Then he appointed twelve, that they might be with him, and that he might send them out to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out demons. Then it mentions them by name. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So Jesus appointed twelve, which are the foundations of the New Testament church. Or a continuation of his church. The number twelve indicates that God has one church. The number twelve indicates that it's one church composed of the founders, twelve individuals, that become a great nation. Did the Christian church come from the twelve original founders? They then grew into a great nation which was the Christian church. So the number 12 is the number of God's people. It's the number of the church in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you know, uh, evangelicals today, Pentecostals, who believe in the rapture, they believe that God has two separable peoples with two different plans. He has one plan for the church, which will be raptured out of the earth seven years before the glorious coming of Christ. And then the other people, the Jews, will be left behind to suffer the great tribulation. And God has the earthly Jerusalem planned for the Jews, and he has the heavenly Jerusalem prepared for the church. Two separate peoples. But my Bible tells me that there's only one woman in two stages, identified by the number 12. Because she has the crown with 12 stars, both in the Old Testament period and in the New Testament period. Now let me read you what Ellen White had to say. See, he knew this all the time. <laughs> These are the things that really, you know, when I go, when I do my biblical research and then I read Ellen White, I say, Why did I take all this? Stuff? No, I don't say that. <laughs> because it's nice to discover it for yourself. But in Acts of the Apostles, page 19... He says this, As in the Old Testament, the twelve patriarchs stood as representatives of Israel, so the twelve apostles stood as representatives of the gospel church. They are the representatives and the founders. But now we still have not answered our question. Why the urgency to uh, name Apostle number 12 before the Spirit was poured out on the Apostles? Why not wait? Why did they have to have 12 before the Holy Spirit was poured out? Well, in order to understand this, we have to understand the sanctuary. So go with me to Leviticus 8, and verses 6 through 12. Leviticus chapter 8 and verses 6 through 12. Do you know what makes the Seventh-day Adventist Church unique? Our doctrine of the sanctuary. The doctrine of the sanctuary is the magnet of Seventh-day Adventist theology. Every doctrine of the church can be explained from the perspective of the sanctuary. In fact, I did. I, I just... The newest project we did at Secrets Unsealed was to tape a 32-part series presenting the full Adventist message from the perspective of the sanctuary. It was a fascinating study. Even I was fascinated. <laughs> As I studied, I said, Wow, all of the teachings of the Adventist Church are in the sanctuary. And the relationship between one and the other doctrine are all revealed there in all their beauty. It's amazing. Now notice Leviticus, chapter 8, and we'll read verses 6 through 12. Now we're going to talk about what was happening with Jesus during those ten days that the disciples were in the upper room. It says there in verse 6, Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. Interesting, washed them with water. Remember the labor. Right before they begin serving in the holy place, they're washed. Now notice verse 7. And he put the tunic on him. This is speaking now about Aaron. Girded him with the sash. Clothed him with the robe. And put the ephod on him. And he girded him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. And with it tied the ephod on him. Then he put the breastplate on him. And he put the Urim and Thummim in the breastplate. And he put the turban on his head. Also on the turban on its front, he put the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. What's happening here? This is before the sanctuary service begins. It begins in the next chapter, when God rains fire from heaven. What is Moses doing to Aaron? He is clothing Aaron as high priest, piece by piece. You notice that he places each piece, piece of the clothing upon Aaron before he begins serving in the sanctuary. But there's more. Notice what he continues saying in verse 10. Also Moses took the anointing oil. What does oil represent? The Holy Spirit. And anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. See, he's anointing the entire sanctuary for the sanctuary service to take place. He sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times. Anointed the altar and all its utensils and the laver and its base to consecrate them. And now notice. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head. And anointed him to consecrate him. Three things are happening here. Number one, the sanctuary is being dedicated to begin the sanctuary service in the holy place. Two, Aaron is being clothed as high priest to serve in there. And three, he's being anointed with the oil so that he can officially serve as high priest. Now go with me to Psalm 133, which I call the Pentecostal psalm. Immediately you're going to see the connection with Pentecost. Psalm 133. You're going to see it uh, very clearly, beginning at the first verse. It says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. What does Acts chapter 2 have to say? When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one accord. See, this is a Pentecostal song. This is actually actually describing what we just read in Leviticus 8. Let's continue reading. Verse 2. It is like the precious oil upon the head. This is not just any little old cup of oil. This is an abundance of oil. Because we're told, it is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, see there's the connection with Leviticus 8, running down on the edge of his garments, Ooh, this is a lot of oil, but not only does it run down on his garments, it continues saying, it is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Are you catching the picture of what's happening here? The oil was so abundant that it, dripped, uh, it went onto Aaron's head, then it dripped down his beard, it dripped down to the bottom of his garments, and some drops even fell on the mountains of Zion. Who was gathered on the mountains of Zion? The twelve apostles. So what happened on earth was only a few little drippings of what really happened in heaven. What happened on earth was the earthly announcement that Jesus, that God the Father had clothed Jesus with each piece of the high priestly garment. And that the sanctuary had been sanctified and dedicated. And that Jesus had received the promise from his Father. Because the promise was given to Jesus to give to us. So he's anointed and then he gives it to us. Read Acts chapter 2 and verse 33. It says he received the promise from the Father and he imparts it to us. In other words, he was anointed to be high priest. And it drips out unto us. And it says in Hebrews chapter 8 verses 1 and 2. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. Here, the Apostle Paul is commenting on this. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Are you understanding what happened in heaven during those 10 days? Well, during those ten days, you have, first of all, the welcome of Jesus. We talked about this desire of ages in the last three pages. He goes into the presence of his Father. He says, I need to know whether what I did on earth is sufficient to bring my people home because I want them where I am. The Father says, he embraces his Son. He says, it is sufficient. And then the angels sing and then the Father says, come, come, come. Now I have to put each piece of the of the garments of the high priest upon you. And we need to anoint the sanctuary with oil, which represents the Holy Spirit. And then I need to give you the promise that I made to you so that the drippings can fall down on those who are gathered in the upper room so that they know that you have been installed as the high priest. That's what's happening during those ten days in heaven. Yet people focus on what was happening on earth when the important event took place in heaven. But we still haven't answered our question. Why did they need to elect Apostle number 12 before the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost? The answer is found in understanding one of the pieces of clothing that was placed on the high priest. Go with me to Exodus 28. In verse 21... And then we'll jump down to verses 29 and 30. Exodus 28, verse 21. Speaking about the breastplate of the high priest, it was a square that had 12 precious and semi-precious stones. It says there, and the, tw- and the stones shall have the names. Of the sons of Israel. This is Aaron in the Old Testament. So what names does the clothing of Jesus have? Of the twelve apostles, that's right. But there were only (laughs) eleven. Some of you got that. Let's continue. And the stones shall have the names of the sons of Israel. Twelve according to their names. Like the engravings of a signet, each one with its own name. They shall be according to the twelve tribes. And now notice verse 29. So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel on the breastplate of judgment over his heart. When he goes into the holy place as a memorial before the Lord continually. And verse 30 is particularly significant. And you shall put in the breastplate of judgment, the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be over Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. So who does the high priest have over his heart? His church. Which was founded by twelve, but then became a worldwide global church. See, the twelve are only the representative founders. But from them comes the whole church. So what does Jesus have closest to his heart? His church. That's the reason why the devil wants to split and destroy the church. Now notice what it continues saying. So, listen carefully. Aaron shall bear the judgment Of the children of Israel over his heart before the Lord continually. What does Aaron bear? The judgment of the children of Israel. If I appeared before God in my own merits, what would have to fall upon me? God's judgment. And I would have to be destroyed. But because Jesus is in the presence of his Father, and he bears my judgment upon his heart, I don't have to die because I'm accepted in the Beloved. In fact, notice what we find in Isaiah 53, the same word is used in, uh, to bear The judgment of the children of Israel over his heart continually. Isaiah 53 verses 4 and 5 uses the identical Hebrew word. It says, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Did he carry our judgment? Did he bear our judgment? Are you afraid uh, of coming boldly to the throne of grace? We can come boldly through Jesus. Because he bears our judgment. his heart. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Skipped here. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord, listen carefully, he bore our judgment, he bears it upon his heart, it says, and the Lord has laid on him what? Has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bears our judgment upon his heart. Now you say, why was it necessary to elect Apostle number 12 before the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost? I think the answer is quite obvious. You see, when Jesus was clothed as the high priest, one of the pieces of clothing that was placed on him was the breastplate. And the breastplate had 12 stones. But on earth there were only 11 Apostles. And so it's necessary to elect Apostle number 12 so that Jesus could wear the breastplate with 12 stones. In other words, the founders had to be complete before Jesus could begin to serve as high priest over his people. It's amazing how the Bible is detailed in, in, in all of these things. Nothing is coincidental Nothing is out of place. Now what is the great desire of Jesus? The great desire of Jesus is for us to be with him. He has us right close to his heart. You remember Jesus in those famous words in John 14, 1 to 3, He said, let not your heart be troubled. And they were troubled. Do you know why they're troubled? Because in the previous chapter, Jesus says, I'm leaving. And where I'm going, you can't go with me now. And Peter says, what do you mean I can't go with you now? We love you. (laughs) Jesus says, you'll go later. Peter says, I don't want to go later. I want to go now. Peter loved Jesus. And Jesus, after, after Jesus said this to Peter, he said, you're going to deny me. He knows that the disciples, their, their, their hearts are troubled. The word troubled there is used, for example, to describe King Herod. When he heard that the Messiah had been born, he was troubled. So this is a deep trouble. It's used of the waters. You know, the waters were troubled and the first one to jump in was healed. That was the belief. Well, that's the word. Troub- same word, troubled. So they were in turmoil because their beloved Jesus was leaving. So Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then we have a verse that has been greatly misunderstood. We say, in my Father's house there will be many mansions. See, we have this idea that Jesus went to heaven to, to, to serve as a heavenly contractor. To build houses. Jesus does not need 2,000 years to build houses. Even mansions. Because he created the world in six days. He said, in my Father's house are many mansions. They were there when he said it. In my Father's... Now, if there are many mansions there, actually the word, the, the word uh, uh, in Greek is monai, which means permanent dwellings. In my father's house are many permanent dwellings. Who do you suppose those permanent dwellings are for? <laughs> for us, Amen. because he wants to be with us. Amen. See, and we need to want to to be with him. When the feeling is mutual, this will all come to an end. Then Jesus, will be, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim. But when we're focused on the things of earth, you know we're focusing on money and toys and cars and houses. It's all going to burn. The more we have, the more fuel the Lord is going to have. The more he's going to have to burn up. So why focus on those things? I think the reason why is because we we say, oh yeah, I believe that there's a heaven, I believe that Jesus is coming, but just in case. Is that true? If we were were honest, I think we would have to say that. And then Jesus says in verse 3, he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not, not so, I would have told you. And then he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And we've usually focused on Jesus preparing a physical place for us. But really, when you look at the book of Hebrews, what Jesus meant is he's going to prepare a place by his work in the sanctuary. You see, it's by his work in the holy place and in the most holy place that he prepares the place for us. And while he's preparing a place in heaven for us, His people should be preparing on earth. There has to be a parallel work that takes place on earth. And then at the end of the passage, he expresses why he goes through. He says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, see, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. See, we don't focus on that issue. Even if in heaven there there was no uh, tree with different kinds of fruit and no uh, H2O that really tastes like water (laughs) and no planets to visit and no foundations of precious stones and no gates of pearl. If there was none none of that, if Jesus was there, it would be worth it. You see, all of those are just the trimmings. The dessert, if you please. Jesus is the main course. (laughs) Do you remember the Apostle Paul? He speaks about the resurrection. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, The Lord himself will descend with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then what does he say? Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And did you notice how he ends? And thus shall we ever be with the Lord. So what is the idea? The idea is that we're ever going to be with the Lord. And Ezekiel chapter 48 and verse 31, I believe, right in there, it says that even the name of the new Jerusalem will be changed. It will be called Yahweh Shammah, which means the Lord is there. So our city is going to be called. The Lord is there. He will be truly Emmanuel, God with us. That's what it's all about. And when we have that passion for Jesus, the work will be finished, and it will be finished in a hurry. The trouble is, we have too many distractions. You know, we're we're, we're unruly soldiers, and we don't follow the orders of our commander. Listen to John 17, 24, and 25. This is the prayer of Jesus in the garden. This is his high priestly prayer, where he prays that he wants his his followers to be one as he and his Father are one. But notice what the passion of Jesus is at the climax of this prayer. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be what? May be with me where I am that they may behold my glory which you have given me for you love me before the foundation of the world. Ellen White in Gospel Workers page 34 says this of Aaron the high priest of Israel it is written he shall bear the names of the children of Israel in the breastplate of judgment upon his heart when he goeth in Unto the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. And then she comments on this passage, Exodus 28, 29. She says, what a beautiful and expressive figure this is of the unchanging love of Christ for his church. Our great high priest, of whom Aaron was a type, bears his people upon his heart. And should not his earthly ministers share his love and sympathy and solicitude? There's one more thing that I want to say about the number 12. We've said that the number 12 represents God's Old Testament people and God's New Testament people. Now, the book of Revelation, if you go with me to Revelation chapter 21 and verse 12, find an interesting characteristic about the 12 gates of the city. It says there in Revelation 21 verse 12, Also, she had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and twelve angels at the gates, and names written on them, which are the names of what? Of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Ah, but the city also has twelve foundations. The wall has twelve foundations. What names do the foundations have? Revelation 21, verse 14. Now the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. So are you understanding the meaning of the number twelve? I'd like to end, and then we'll open it up for questions, and then we'll have a season of prayer. By reading a couple of quotations from the Spirit of Prophecy, Testimonies to Ministers, page 15 is the first one. She says, I testify to my brethren and sisters that the Church of Christ, enfeebled and defective as it may be, is the only object on earth on which he bestows his supreme regard. Isn't that amazing? His supreme regard. While he extends to all the world his invitation to come to him and be saved, He commissions his angels to render divine help to every soul that cometh to him in repentance and contrition. And he comes personally by his Holy Spirit into the midst of his church. The final one is in Testimonies, Volume 7, page 16. This is an amazing statement. She says, enfeebled and defective, needing constantly to be warned and counseled, The church is nevertheless the object of Christ's supreme regard. And here comes the the portion that I especially like. He is making experiments of grace on human hearts and is effecting such transformations of character that angels are amazed and express their joy in songs of praise. They rejoice to think that sinful erring human beings can be so transformed. Amen. Beautiful statement. So do you understand a little bit better what's going on at Pentecost? Does it have personal meaning for us? Oh, has tremendous meaning. We need to go out and tell the world, hey, Jesus wants you to receive him as Savior and Lord. He has you close to his heart. He took your judgment upon himself. <laughs> Who can't love a Savior like that? Now, just a little announcement about tomorrow morning. Don't miss tomorrow morning. If you miss this morning, and for some reason you didn't come this afternoon, I know I'm preaching to the choir because you're here. You don't want to miss tomorrow morning. There is one aspect that we as Adventists have not emphasized sufficiently, I believe. And this is where we run into troubles when we talk about the Trinity, And that is the role of the angels in God's method of administrating the universe. There's a a missing link in our understanding of how God works or operates in the universe. Revelation chapter 1 makes it very clear. God has a chain of command. The Father gives the message to Jesus. Jesus gives it to the Spirit, because the Spirit speaks to the churches. Then, the Spirit gives it to the angel. The angel gives it to John. John writes it in a book, and he sends it to the church, for the church to share it with the world. And sometimes what we've missed is is the connection between the role of the Holy Spirit... And the link between the Holy Spirit and us, we're going to find that the foot soldiers of the Holy Spirit are the angels, and God is waiting to unleash all of the heavenly hosts upon planet Earth like He did on the day of Pentecost. I'm going to read you some amazing statements from the writings of LOI. And do you know what he's waiting for? For us? Because he will do nothing without our cooperation. He's waiting for us. See, Jesus already gained the victory over Satan. Satan was cast out as the ruler of this. Jesus is the ruler, but the devil isn't going to roll over and play dead. He says to Jesus, "Okay, you took the throne back. You gained the throne that Adam lost. Come and get it." So now, what's the decisive battle? D Day already took place. But then there's some battles that still need to be fought. And of course the final, definitive battle is the Battle of Armageddon. We'll study all of that tomorrow when we deal with the end. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.